The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I'm delighted to be here. I'm glad that you're here. You realize, of course, that this is the the equivalent of the graveyard shift. Uh, After lunch, when everybody's very sleepy, this is the time when the devil comes alongside and puts a spirit of stupor on people so that they have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. Uh, I shall be watching. For my part, I'll try not to be an instrument in his hands. Um, It has been said that, you know, I've been introduced as an ambassador. Lord Acton famously said that an ambassador is an honest man sent abroad to lie on behalf of his country, of his sovereign. i like you to know that I stopped lying for my sovereign three years ago when I retired from the Foreign Service, and uh, my new do- job description doesn't involve lying as an ambassador for the kingdom of God, for ambassadors for Christ, as we all are. Um, I want to share with you today some of the things. I, I don't have too much time, I'm told. Uh, and uh, there are people anxiously waiting to come and take this place in, in, on the pulpit. So um, I want to share with you some things that excite me as well as trouble me as I look upon the, the cultural landscape from a faith perspective. I want to approach the theme of this conference, Christ and Culture, uh, from the perspective of the enormous changes that have taken place and that are still taking place, still unfolding all around us. Uh, and, the, and the challenges that it presents to us as a faith community. And then I want to look at some of the choices that we as a faith community uh, need uh, to make change. We're living in such an enormous time of change. In diplomacy, we, had, we have a saying, that, saying uh, that said that when something like um, change is the only constant in international affairs. I guess it's the only constant in life. And today... We have to change that to say exponential change is the only constant in life. I like what Isaac Asimov, not one of my favorite authors, but I like what he said. The only constant is change, continuing change, inevitable change. That is the dominant factor in society today. No sensible decision can be made any longer without taking into account not only the world as it is, but the world as it will be. When I just look at my brief life, don't get fooled by the... Um, the world I was born to, do you realize that the world I was born into is completely different from the world that I inhabit today? Everything that I've come to depend on, internet, TV, um, computers, cell phones, they all came into existence during my lifetime. Um, almost everything around us is new. In my lifetime, I have seen things that were invented and became obsolete. Anybody remember the cyclostyle machine? Eight-track DV, uh, players? Film cameras? The change has been... It, it's, we, we live at a time of such exponential change, such incredible change. I'm told that the sum total of medical knowledge doubles every four years. I'm told that 90% of, of all the scientists who have ever lived are alive today. Um, the pace of inventions and discoveries. You know, if you look at, at it from a historical perspective, discoveries took place slowly over several hundred years. And then in the 21st century, bang, there's an explosion of inventions uh, and discoveries. And we are now on the verge of new discoveries and new inventions, and 
that have, have the capacity to impact life as we know it so completely. And of course, we don't really know where it's all going. Uh, uh, one management uh, guru put it this way, the capacity of the human mind for, for invention far outstrips its ability to assimilate the changes that inventions produce. So we're, we're living in this time of extraordinary change. And if you ever doubt it, I mean, just read the newspapers, turn on the TV. If you look at the, at, the, at the whole economic environment we are today, the one word that I hear consistently when people talk about the economy, when you read the business sections of newspapers, that one word is turmoil. Turmoil. Turmoil in the markets. Turmoil there. Turmoil. Turmoil. In just these few months, uh, years, we've seen some of the mightiest financial institutions collapse. We've seen nations, look what's going on in Europe, nations on the verge of, of bankruptcy, once mighty economies struggling. You, you, you have the bizarre spectacle of Western Europe looking to China to rescue it from, 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 its, from the financial pressures uh, it faces. You know, I lived in China uh, uh, in 1979, uh, just after the Cultural Revolution. Nobody could have told me. I was complete, I'm, nobody could have even anticipated the, 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 the fantastic uh, development trajectory that China has been on. It's unbelievable. And if you look at the global economy today, uh, if you look at the interdependency of the global economy, look at the complexity, the only thing we can be sure about is nobody knows anything. <laughs> and then you look at the, at, the, at the political world. In just a short period of time, we, we've seen in, in North America, we went from hubris to despair. Can anybody remember Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History? And now they're talking about the decline and fall of the American empire, the famous Guardian article. We've seen long-established dictatorships crumbling. We've seen seismic changes in, in, in the Muslim world. I never thought I would see the day when thousands of, of people in, 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 in Egypt or in other parts of the, of the Middle East would be, would be out there chanting, not chanting death to America, but chanting freedom. Who would have thought that? You know... And so we see, and we see superpowers being humbled by a ragtag bunch of, of, of gorillas. You know, I've been a diplomat for over 36 years, and uh, I, I, nothing could have prepared me. As somebody who's been observing uh, the international scene, nothing could have prepared me for the changes that I've seen in just the last uh, few years. And then you look at the, at the, at the, at the social, cultural transformation. If you look at, if you look at our, our society today, you see the, the sad decline of marriage and, and family, family life. You see the rise of a, of a fatherless generation. Uh, you see this whole thing about gay marriage. Well, you know, when I was a kid, gay was an adjective, not a noun. <laughs> and, uh, and then you see the, the, the legalization of abortion and sex selection. I was just reading in the newspaper that in India, 40 million women are missing because of selective sex, because of selective abortion. 40 million people. Then you see the moral underpinnings of society being dismantled. You know, I was reading a book recently about, about uh, 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 Rome at the time of Paul. And after reading that book, and I look around me, I, I wonder, are we returning to the era of imperial Rome with the glorification of violence, uh, with the wanton immorality, with the cheapening of life? And you look at all these things, you look at the drug addiction, the suicide, the euthanasia, all these kind of things that are, that are going on. And then you see this, the rise of, of secular humanism. How did we as a society go from a, from a society that's founded on Christian values to a, a society that's antagonistic 
against, against those same values. I remember sitting in, at, in, at a dinner at the Governor General's residence and talking to one of those high achievers who had just been awarded the, the Order of Canada. And, and uh, that, that day at the ceremony, there was a, there, there, there was a you know, everybody, does, it's an interfaith thing, and everybody takes turns uh, to, to, to bring a, a prayer, a blessing. This thing is really, to bring a blessing. And uh, there was a guy from the Salvation Army who stood up and he took it and he preached the word. And this, this guy, this guy came to me afterwards, you know. One of, the, one of the fun things about being a Christian in the service of a Muslim country is that everybody thinks you're Muslim, so they feel free to talk. And so <laughs> this, guy, this guy came up to me and, and he would say, it's outrageous that they should have this guy speak. You know, Canada is not a Christian country anymore. Why do we allow this nonsense to go on? And then we were talking, and that was the same day that Paul Martin was sworn in as prime minister. And if you remember, he had a First Nation and Indian ceremony that with smoke and all that kind of thing. So I asked this guy what he thought about that ceremony. And he said, oh, I thought that was fascinating. And I said, so let me understand this. Your problem is only with Christian, not with anything else. And of course, then they go into denial. Um, but so as we, see, we, see all that, we see the exclusion of God from the, from the public space. And even, even right now, we are and waiting for a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada about whether Christians are, allowed, are going to be allowed to, uh, to speak their beliefs in the public square. This is about, of course, the whole thing about homosexuality. I can't tell you how many places I've been to where even to say that Jesus is the only way is seen as intolerance. This thing is really... Eating into my minutes by disturbing me. Okay, uh, it's, 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 it's seen as in, in, intolerance, even by Christians. I remember one interfaith meeting that I attended when, you know, it's amazing that it's only the Christians somehow who feel they need to be on the defensive. Uh, the, 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 the Buddhist guy, he got up in, at this interfaith meeting in parliament, he got up and he told you what Buddhism was about. He prayed and chanted and did whatever he had to do. The Muslim guy, he got up and told you what Islam was and his attitude was... Hey, you don't like the way we treat women? Tough. But every time a Christian got up, they would waffle, they would defend, they would... And I was sitting beside no less than a person than a bishop. And I turned, you know, to my little booklet and I said, Bishop, whatever happened to this? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And the bishop looked at me, horrified. He said, oh, I wouldn't mention that if I were you. That's too controversial. And this is coming from, 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 from Christians. This is coming from, from Christians. So we, we see all this tremendous change. Now all this change to me forms the context for where we find ourselves as a faith community today. We find, suddenly we find ourselves in a post-Christian, post-modern society. The church struggling to survive, to stay relevant, to make its voice heard. We have been hobbled by scandal, by, weakened by compromise. Uh, I don't need to tell you about all the stories about church closing, denominations folding. I tell you, the church as we know it is dying. In, in Ottawa, one major denomination is estimated that at the present rate of growth or non-growth will cease to exist in 2025 in the Ottawa Valley. Uh, that's how I, I, remember, I remember going to a, a fine church in Quebec City. And r- right there in the lobby, they have a sign that's saying, dedicated in 18-something to the glory of God. And you go in and the church is dying. I talked to one of the persons there, people there. They've got about five, ten people left. They don't know. And I said, what are you, what, 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 how are you responding to this? 
And he said, we, we don't know what to do. I, I remember, I'm, I'm sure you remember A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite Christian authors. I, I read somewhere that, you know, Tozer, uh, his last church was in Toronto. One of his last churches was in Toronto. And I, I promised myself, I was in, actually at the time in the very tip of South, South America when I was reading his book. And I said to me, if ever I get, I said to myself, if ever I get to Toronto, I want to go and visit his church. You see, I, I, I want to go and put my fingers on hands on his pulpit. Maybe there's some traces of that anointing that's left there. You know, I, I want to go and stand in the place. This, this is such a great man. And I, I remember I was going to preach at a church and I, I told the pastor about this thing. And he said, actually, Tozer's church is along the way. Why don't we stop there? And I said, great. And you know, when we got there, there was a sign on, on, in the front door that said, Hare Krishna Center. How did we go from within 50, 60 years from the, the pulpit of this great man of God to, 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 uh, to, to a Hare Krishna Center? Now, I have lost my notes. Um, I am using an... Uh, a, okay. I'm using an iPad, so... <laughs> Trying to be, keep up with the times, you know? Um... <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and, and you know what? Somehow, my sense is that we as a church, as a, as a faith community, we have not handled change very well. We have just not handled change very well. We have been uh, resistant to change. We are, we are like the, the Pharisees who hold on to our traditions, even when the, those traditions are killing us. We're trying to do the right things, and we have lost sight of what the right things are. And so... You know, where, where do we stand as a, as a faith community? What are the kind of challenges? I, I, look, I look at in the Old Testament. Whenever society, whenever the nation, whatever culture got off track, when there was confusion, there was moral decay, uh, God always sent a prophet to remind them of the original purpose of God. And the plan of God. He sent a prophet to remind them about the heart of God. And we as a church, we are called to be that prophetic voice to the nation. And there's always serious consequences for culture when that voice is diminished. So we come back to this question of how do we position ourselves in the midst of change and uh, to to speak effectively to culture. I, I want to very quickly put suggest a threefold response, discernment, commitment, and engagement. I want to look at discernment first. You know, in the first place, we as a church, we should not have been caught by change. Because this isn't the Bible. The Bible is so full of warnings about what is to come, isn't it? If you look at the Bible, Jesus talked about a time when faith will grow dim, when the love of many will grow cold. He talked about a time of a great apostasy. He talked about a time when wickedness will increase, when people will call good evil and evil good. He talked of the church being persecuted. He even wondered whether he would find faith on earth when he returned. Remember all those things? But somehow, like the Pharisees, we read the, prophecy, the prophets every Sabbath, but we missed the prophecy. Jesus challenged his followers to discern the times and act appropriately. I, 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 my sense is that we have never been good at this. We tend to fight the small battles but lose sight of the war, of the real war. When you look at things like homosexuality, gay marriage, um, abortion, even the way religion was perceived, you understand, of course, that it didn't happen overnight. It, it, they were working in the shadows silently over many, many years. And then suddenly it burst 
on the scene. Suddenly, it reached a tipping point. The question is, where were we as a faith community when all this was going on over many, many years? Where were we? And the, the other question we should ask ourselves is, what else is coming down the pike that we are not now seeing? That we are going to have to grapple with, that our children are going to have to grapple with uh, years from now. Euthanasia, polygamy, lower age of consent, Sharia law. It's not as impossible as it might seem. Remember that in our great province, they even considered introducing Sharia law not so long ago. Remember? Will the Bible be declared hate literature? You see, if we as a church, if we can discern, we can intercept and neutralize before it reaches a tipping point. You know, I, I, I look at some of the activities of humanists and atheists. They have been consistently at work. They have a long-term vision, a long-term plan. And they've been, when they've been working, I want to read. You know, while we have so, been so focused on fighting symbolic battles like prayer in schools, and I'm not knocking that. I, I understand the importance of that. But while we are so focused on, on those kinds of battles, the humanists and the atheists, they have been busy molding the thinking of an entire generation. Here's, what I, 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 here's something that I want to read to you. And it's an ex- excerpt from John Dumpy's award-winning essay, The Humanist, published in 1983. It says, The battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classrooms by teachers who correctly perceive their role as proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to carry humanist values into whatever they teach. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity together with its adjacent evils and miseries and the new faith of humanism. And here's the interesting part. He goes on to say, John Dewey, remembered for his efforts in establishing America's current educational system, was one of the chief signers of the 1933 Humanist Manifesto. It seems that humanists have been interested in America's education system for nearly a century, and they have been absolutely successful in teaching children that God is imaginary and contrary to science. Even now, if you look, the, uh, I don't know how many of you actually follow um, closely international affairs, but recently there was a Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Perth, Australia. Uh, 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 Australia, Britain, and Canada have been pushing a human rights agenda. Uh, for the commonwealth. Nothing wrong with that. Except that part of that is a gay rights agenda. And, and the British Prime Minister is on record as saying he is threatening to cut off funding for poor developing countries if they do not legalize uh, things like gay marriage. So you, you can imagine that you can see two levels here. At, at the ground level, you, you have pastors and Christian leaders encouraging young people to live a godly lifestyle. And then at this level... You have a, a global agenda that intends that will I, I, end up subverting the very things that they are, are, are trying to do. And so the church has to do a better job, even at, at that level. One of the things that has always frustrated me is that I don't see the, the, the kind of Christian response at the global level. It's like, you know, the churches, we, 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 we have our, our heads in the ground like the, the proverbial kangaroo. The world is changing around us, but we are in church. We are preaching to the converted. Uh, maybe you think I'm being too harsh, but it, it frustrates me when I see the absence 
of that, of that kind of Christian response uh, at, 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 an, at an international level. And the third is, the, the, then, the, then I want to come to commitment. You know, there's no argument, I presume, among us that all of us are called to ministry. We are the light of the world, the salt of the earth, ambassadors for Christ. But can I tell you, even at the risk of sounding very harsh, that the, the commitment of the average Christian to his ministry is a joke. We bring a work ethic to our ministry that if we took to work would get us fired. Or we have excuses, not ready, not able, not enough time. I, when I read my Bible, I see that all are called and anointed, but we have to develop and grow our ministries. Isn't that right? It calls for discipline, it calls for hard work, it calls for, for sacrifice, it calls for courage. Have we taken the time, you know, the Bible talks about, uh, about you, each, each, one, each one has been given gifts. You're aware of that, right? The Bible talks about that. Now let me ask you this question. Have you taken time to discover what gifts you have? You see, we, we, we read our Bible, we, see, we come across all these all these words like, you know, to each one has been given a measure of the Spirit or to each one has been given gifts. We have been different. We, it says we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. Romans 12, 6. But what, is, what gift have you received? Have you taken time to, to, to understand those gifts? Do we not treasure those gifts? You know, the world is waiting out there, desperately waiting for, a Christian to, for Christians to release the gifts that God has given them. And so many times they never see it because we have not taken the time to develop, to discover, to develop. And then there's this question, which I'm sure you've heard many times from Joe. Are we ready as believers? Are we ready to give a defense of the gospel without being defensive? You know, it, it, it says always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have in, in 1 Peter 3.15. Do we have as believers, do we have sound, biblically based answers to the questions that the world is asking? It's very easy for us to to retreat into our churches and and condemn the rest of the world. But they they are searching for answers too. Answers that are reasonable and and consistent with our faith. Charles Malik, a Lebanese diplomat, Christian scholar and friend of Billy Graham had this to say. He said, the problem is not only to win souls but to save minds. If you win the world and lose the mind of the world, you will soon discover that you have not won the world. Indeed, it may turn out that you have actually lost the world. So much of our public discourse, our attempts at engaging culture, is really shockingly devoid of sound scholarship and clear theology. I don't know whether you agree with that. But that's how, you know, I, I watched recently an interview, CNN with one of the U.S. presidential candidates, Republican presidential candidates. I mean, here's a man who, uh, who, who established right from the beginning his Christian credentials. He was a man of faith. He was deeply committed to his faith and uh, spent the first few minutes impressing the point that he was a committed Christian. Piers Morgan, who was doing the interview, asked him, so, tell me, do you seriously believe in this? absurdity of creationism? Do you really believe that? And then asked him about abortion. Why would he be so mean to prevent a woman from her rights? And you know, he waffled, this Republican candidate, he waffled 
and waffled and waffled and finally ended up saying, I guess it's a personal choice, isn't it? But isn't that what the atheist and humanist are saying? And it shocked me that somebody at that level hadn't done the homework, hadn't seriously thought through the issues to be able to, good, to give a good defense of what he believed. Why should the world take us seriously if we behave like that? Why should the world think that we have something that is valid if we bring such shoddy scholarship uh, to these important issues? How can we ever hope to convince the world that the Bible perspective is sound, reasonable, and worth considering if we cannot even give a decent response to these issues? And you know, it's, 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 so it's, it's, it's easy to point to people like that, or people in leadership, or people in ministry. But really, it starts with us. It really starts with us. Because we are the ones that engage people on the streets, neighbors, friends, family, school. And it also, it also surprises me that, you know, at a time when Christianity needs a strong intellectual foundation, there's so much of an intellectual bias in Christianity today, in many denominations, there's such a, uh, uh, this, this, this kind of thing that, oh, we don't need that. We don't need, we don't, we don't need that. And all I can say is this. I, I find, it, find it fascinating that whenever God looked for a man or a woman to turn things around in society, to establish a worldview, to counter the mess that society was in, he always looked for a scholar. He often looked for a scholar. In some of the darkest moments of history, God chose men of intellect to establish foundations. Paul was a scholar. Martin Luther was professor of theology. George Whitfield and John Wesley, Oxford boys. Jonathan Edwards read the great American revival and awakening was president of what was to become Princeton University. Charles Finney, president of Oberlin College. Isn't it interesting? It's, it's, I, I thought that was just uh, fantastic, for, uh, just amazing. And then the final thing is engagement. So we, we uh, shall I, okay, well, I'm, not, I'm, not going to, uh, to, to I'm not going to test you whether you've been listening. But anyway, the third thing is engagement. I see, in, in all the years I've been in Ottawa, a sad retreat of Christians from the public square. We have this bizarre situation of gays coming out of the closet, Christians going into the closet. <laughs> Willing to compromise, to be accepted, intimidated, embarrassed, ashamed of the gospel. One of the things that I, 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 I keep, uh, one of my treasures which I like to use when I, when I speak is, I have a bunch of, you know, as ambassador, you get all kinds of people sending you Christmas cards. And, uh, and so I have, this Christmas, I have a collection of Christmas cards. One was from a cabinet minister at the time, liberal cabinet minister. Not that you know, there's great liberals or Christian, but this particular cabinet minister on a Christmas card had a photograph of her standing with a group of Sikh holy men on a Christmas card. Sikh holy men. And inside was the word peace, peace, peace in different languages. Another one had his family photograph and said joyous season greetings, something like that. And so on and so forth it went from all the nominally Christian people. 
Then I got a phone card, uh, a Christmas card from uh, my friend, the ambassador of Yemen, and it said, "Glory to God in the highest, peace to man." And then I got a card from my own staff. I'm the only Christian in my embassy at the time. They were all Muslim. And I got a card that said, For unto you this day is born a savior. <laughs> um, it's like we have been so conditioned by culture that we are responding exactly the way culture has conditioned us. I, I, I want to read this. There was a book, uh, there's a guy called Carter Woodson who wrote a book called The Miseducation of the Negro. But what he said was very interesting. He said, if you can control a man's thinking, you don't have to worry about his actions. If you can determine what a man thinks, you do not have to worry about what he will do. If you can make a man believe that he is inferior, you don't have to compel him to seek an inferior status. He will do so without being told. And if you can make a man believe that he is justly an outcast, you don't have to order him to the back door. He will go to the back door on his own. And if there's no back door, his very nature will demand it. And I've seen too many Christians looking for the back door. I think that a silent Christian is a paradox. And so if we're ever going to engage culture, we, we have to have the courage to engage, not aggressively, but in patience, with love, and without compromise an engagement means an engagement means confronting ideas and concepts and traditions that are contrary uh, to, to, to a biblical to the biblical perspective we, we often forget how radical Jesus was when he engaged culture he, he, he because he understood that the famous words that people like Joe like to use ideas have consequences he understood that ideas do have consequences and, it was, and whenever there were ideas and traditions and customs that kept people from God, that were, that were serving as, that were, that were acting as, cause, that caused people to stumble, he confronted them. He upend, upended their traditions. He, he stretched and challenged their notions of, of God, of love, of service, of what a, who a neighbor is. He mixed with prostitutes and tax collectors, and which, which I gather was a shocking thing in, in his day. And he, and, he, and he kept saying this, and you, you, you've seen this in the Bible. He kept saying, you have heard, but I say. Isn't that right? He kept challenging them. The Bible also talks about tearing down strongholds of the mind. I, I like the, 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 the message version of 2 Corinthians 10, 46. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or mani manipulation, but they are for demolishing that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. The bottom line, and I guess I'm speaking to the converted, that we as Christians, we need to be far more active in engaging culture. And, and I, th I think that what we are seeing today in culture uh, the, the, the sad situation of it from a Christian perspective, and let's face it, is because we have not engaged culture the way we are supposed to. I, I, I also see, and this maybe I'm going to get into some hot water here, I also see a real danger that, that, that instead of engaging the culture from a kingdom perspective, we, we are falling back into an old paradigm 
resorting to political power to enforce kingdom values. You know, the church, I, I, you, you might agree or disagree, I feel the church is so intellectually bankrupt that on most issues it embraces right-wing ideological positions. And there's a real danger that kingdom perspectives will be overwhelmed by political agendas. We, we should bear in mind what Billy Graham said. He said, it would disturb me if there was a wedding between the religious fundamentalists and the political right. The hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. And I believe that we are not going to see real change in society on the issues of abortion, of, of gay marriage. We are not going to see real change until we are prepared to make, do the hard work to win hearts and minds. We, 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 you know, the law has its place uh, but this is more than a political issue. And you can see in the, in the U.S., the recent state elections, where in, in one state, uh, the people just overthrew or rejected the whole, all the restrictions on abortion that uh, politicians were trying to, uh, uh, to introduce. That's why we, we so need in, uh, groups like, like the Azra Institute, the, uh, the ADL. We, we so need them. And we as a faith community, uh, I, I think we've been shameful in not backing and supporting uh, these groups, we need to get behind them. I, I, you know, if we are going to win the battle of culture, uh, there, there, there is place, an important place for prayer. I, I'm not knocking all those things, but but I think that unless we are able to to bring together the brightest and the best, the Christian scholars and intellectuals and politicians and and business people and philosophers, uh, we are not going to win. Uh, this battle for culture. And so we, ha- we have to do that. You know, it's like we, I was talking with Rob today about, you know, many Christians, we want to see more Christians in parliament. And, and today we have more Christians in the Canadian parliament than ever before, and that's a great thing. But are they equipped? All we, once they're elected, we as a church, all we say is, oh, I'll pray for you. And that prayer is important. But we need groups like the Azra Institute to come alongside them to equip them so that they can affect culture. They're good politicians. But are, are they able to use their pulpit, their platform to affect culture? So finally, I want to come to the... I talked about change, I talked about challenge, and I want to talk about choice. You know, I, 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 I came across a story about this guy who was walking past uh, uh, somebody's deck one day, and uh, there were people sitting out on the deck chatting and talking, and, uh, and uh, he saw this dog in the corner, moaning and groaning. And so after a while, he stopped, and he went back to the owner, and he said, why is your dog moaning and groaning? And uh, the owner said, well, he's uh, sitting on a nail. And uh, the owner said, uh, and this guy said, so why doesn't he get up and move? And the owner said, well, it's hurting him enough to moan and groan, but not enough to get up and move. (laughs) And I think that we Christians have been like that. Mourning and groaning, lamenting the loss of our Christian heritage in Canada. Worried about the moral decay that we see around us. Threatened by militant atheism and secular humanism. But we're not really willing to do anything about it. We don't see it as our personal responsibility. One of my favorite quotes, Edmund Burke All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. 
Many, I, 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 I minister and I preach across denominational lines. And uh, I can tell you that in so many churches, they have abandoned the battle for culture. Uh, they have retreated to their church and they are waiting for God to send revival. Uh, you know, I, I've studied revivals. I love revivals. I am desperate to see revivals. Who wouldn't want to see those revivals again? Some of the great, amazing revivals that I've seen. I, I've studied revivals all over the world. I, and one of the things I feel that we Christians, we need to pay far more attention to our own history. The history of God on the earth. Because if we did, it will inspire us and encourage us to see how our God worked throughout history. And there's some amazing stories of revival. Do you know there was a revival in Pyongyang, North Korea, 1905? Just some amazing things, but I won't get into that. But I'm excited about revival, and I want to see that kind of revival. But you know, I also know something else. We want God to send revival. God wants to send us. We ask, where now is the God of Elisha? I think God's asking, where are the Elijahs of God? We have a choice to make. A destiny to fulfill, a battle to fight and win. You know, the Sioux, the, the, the First Nation, Lakota Sioux, had something called the Brave Heart Society. I don't know whether you're familiar with it. The Brave Heart Society. These were a group of dedicated warriors who went into battle with a sash around them. And in the middle of the battlefield, they would take their lance and plant it in the ground, and they would take that sash and tie their feet, one foot, to that lance. They would not retreat until they died or somebody came to replace them. The Brave Heart Society. I think God's looking for members for the Brave Heart Society. People who won't back down. People who take a stand no matter what it costs. And you know, the cost we pay in Canada is nothing compared to the cost that our brothers and sisters are paying in so many parts of the, of, of the world. Uh, I, I lost a friend in, in, in March this year. Shabazz Bhatti was the Minister of Minority Affairs of Pakistan. A man of great faith. He stood up for Christian rights, for, for freedom of religion. He stood up for all those things. They threatened him. They, 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 he got many threats. People advised him to leave. He was in Canada uh, in, in, in end of February. And so many of, of his Canadian friends said, Shabazz, leave. Anytime now you could be assassinated. And he said, I can leave anytime. But what about those who can't leave? And if I go, who is going to stand on the, on the walls and be their watchman for this nation? And they killed him for his faith. But he, he was such an amazing man. It, it really inspires and encourages me. His prayer, he said, was, his prayer, he said, was God, I know that someday I'm going to die. God, I, I don't want to die getting hit by a, a car crossing the street. I, I don't want to die of some disease or sickness. If I have to die, let me die a martyr. And he died for his faith. But we don't have to pay that price. God's not calling us to pay that price. What, what the price we pay is embarrassment, ridicule, you know, and uh, hey, welcome to the kingdom of God. <laughs> if you want to stand, you, you get ready to be shouted at. I know what it's like to get shouted at. 
publicly at a dinner because I talked about my faith. But we have to, we have to take a stand. We have to take a stand. And, you know, I, I, I really believe that each one of us have been given unique platforms and pulpits to influence our culture. Our culture is the state it, it is n- not because there are not enough Christians around, but because the Christians who are around have not risen to the challenge of defending the faith that they believe. And so we have to use whatever God has given us, wherever He has positioned us, to His glory. I, you know, some years ago I was approached by a, a, a newspaper in, in Malaysia and, uh, that, had, that was syndicated across Asia, where I would write a column on, on diplomacy, foreign affairs. Um, my first reaction was, no, I, I want to focus on ministry. Uh, I don't want to get involved in secular things. I, I, I really feel that God's given me something and, and given me a focus on it, and I want to do that. Until I felt God speak to me, and he said, I am giving you a platform to speak truth and righteousness to a nation. And you need to use that. And so every time I, I, I do that, I, you know, I, I write, uh, whatever I write in, there's always something in there. The next article I'm writing starts with, there's an old saying that without vision, the people perish. <laughs> and I, I'm using that to, you know, as, as a backdrop for some of the things that, that I want to say. So we, we all, God has put us, has, has uniquely positioned us. When, when you look around this room and look around the congregations around Canada, God has uniquely positioned us in amazing places, in amazing ways to impact our culture. And we need, we need to give glory to God by using the place where God put us in to speak powerfully to culture. Now, I, I know it can be intimidating. I, I know that that maybe we don't feel prepared. But if we don't feel prepared, then get prepared. We, we can't use that excuse of not prepared for a whole lifetime. And, and now, especially that we have groups like, like the Azra Institute, we need to not just support them, but we need to draw. The, 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 the best way we can honor them is to take what they are, they have, they are giving out the research, the study, the scholarship they have given, the best way we can honor them is to take that and run with it. Because it would remain just knowledge, it would remain just studies if it stays with them. But in our hands, it becomes fire to light, to, we can light a fire across this nation. We can light, you know, I'm going to digress a little bit. You know, do, do, we, do we still believe that all Canada can be saved? I mean, tell me, do we, do we as believers, do we believe that all Canada can be saved? I, I, I remember when I came to Canada, I came from Argentina where there was a great move of God and just amazing things, you know. I went for some of the, for some of the revival meetings and when they gave an altar call, if you were in the front, if you don't intend to answer that call, you better get out of the way <laughs> because you'll be trampled under thousands of people. And, and every time I told people about it, Canadians... My Canadian friends would say, oh, you know, Canada, we're not like that. We are hard. This is hard and stony ground. This is difficult. You, you probably won't see that kind of thing happening. Oh, how I wish it was happening. You know, and after a while, I, I, I thought, mm, maybe they're right. Maybe Canada is hard and stony ground. And one, one day I felt the Spirit of the Lord check me and say, don't repeat the lies of the enemy. If you want to repeat something, repeat something that, that God's saying. Be, look at the fields, they are ripe for the harvest. 
And we, we have to start believing ourselves that Canada can be saved. I, I, I met recently with Reinhard Bonke, a, a great missionary to, 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 to Africa. In, in 25 years, 50 million people have been saved under his ministry. And, and he stood up in, 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 that, in that breakfast and said, Canada shall be saved. And I, oh. I suppose, interesting. You know? And he looked at them and he said, You know why I have faith to believe that Canada can be saved? Because I've seen God move in other countries. And if God can do it there, hey, you Canadians are not so special. That, that God can't break through. But we have to start believing that Canada can be saved. That, that, that we have what it takes to impact and change our culture. We have to start believing that. You know, times of change... At times are also times of great opportunity. Chuck Swindoll talk said, "Great opportunity." He described it as great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. All I know this is that in the midst of rapid change, there's also great uncertainty. People are more desperate for answers today than ever before. They are searching for significance, for purpose, for meaning. You know, in Ottawa recently, they had a Tibetan uh, uh, lama come uh, uh, and speak at the Ottawa Convention Center. And uh, 5,000 people, I think, sold out. 600 bucks a piece, completely sold out. How many Christians would pay $600 to come for a conference? But this was completely sold out. Because people are hungry, they are desperate. I mean, I'm, I'm always amazed at how many people uh, are following Deepak Chopra. You know? I mean, here's a guy who would say, well, the secret of unlocking peace is you have to align yourself with the plith of the dimensions of the earth around you and then get into alignment, spiritual alignment with the planetary forces. And I, I, I consider myself to be fairly intelligent, but I have to confess, I don't know what this guy is saying. And, and, and people are, they come out more confused than ever. Why do you think so many Eastern religions are growing rapidly in Canada? Islam is also growing rapidly. You know, there's a huge surge in spirituality. Canada is not becoming less religious, only less Christian. If you go into a bookstore, the bookstore, bookstores are full of, spir- of books on spir- spirituality. That tells me that there's a deep hunger to connect with whoever is out there. They know that humanism and materialism cannot satisfy that deep longing for purpose, for significance in the human heart that gnaws at us from within. I I, I had a neighbor a few years ago, I was talking to him. This guy doesn't believe in God, but you know what? He's searching for God. He doesn't believe in God, but he's searching for God. He, he, told me, he tells me how he, he, has, uh, you know, he listens to, on his iPod, all kinds of teachings and, and things like that. And I gave him the Bible on tape. And I said, listen to that. And he said, wow, I, a, few, a few weeks later, he said, wow, I, I so many things I didn't understand. People are searching, they're hungry for God. Even all these people who say they don't believe in God, or they are atheism, there's something inside that is, that, that, that is gnawing at them. Henry David Thoreau, Thoreau talked about, 
said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. And I, I know what this is like. That was my story. The quiet desperation that came from doing well in career and being a, a diplomat, that, uh, you know, going great places and enjoying your work and all that kind of thing. But inside, questions that I couldn't find any answers for. There's a, a great hunger. There's a great hunger. We're probably living in a time of the greatest potential for harvest in the history of the world. If only we open our eyes and look not as we have been conditioned to look to the eyes of culture, but to open our eyes and look as we've been conditioned or we should be by the words of Jesus, the fields are ripe. We're living, and, and you know, even as we talk about all the things that are going on in Canada and the, the church is closing and all this kind of thing, let's, let's not forget that in the midst of all these things, the gloom, our God is moving in amazing awesome ways. There are millions of people coming to Christ in, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. It's, it's thrilling. In China, people see the rise of China as a big power. But what we don't often hear is the rise of Christianity in China. There was a book that came out recently called, uh, a few years ago called Jesus in Beijing, where this, this, uh, this, this American guy, people assumed that because he was American, he must be Christian. And Chinese, everywhere he went, Chinese people came up to him to ask him whether he knew Jesus. And, and he wrote that book. And he was saying that in some of the small council, city councils, most of the council members are all Christian. And there are stories of generals and all kinds of things. And you know, we, we look with, 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 uh, with the, through the eyes of international politics and we worry about the rise of China. And I'm not saying that those concerns uh, are unjustified. But... Who is to say that even as China rises to greatness, that one day China would be a great Christian nation as well? And then, even in Canada, and I, I mentioned just now, there are more Christian MPs today on the Hill. There are prayer meetings. Do you realize that prayer meetings are spreading across this country? In Ottawa, we have three now. In every little town and village, prayer meetings. Not... not uh, interfaith meetings, mind you, but Christian prayer meetings. And I can tell you, it's worrying the hell out of some of the people out there who don't like it. <laughs> I, I, I remember, oh, I've got four minutes, I better not tell you that story. <laughs> <laughs> It'll probably save me too. Um, you know, uh, and, and, I, I, and more and more I'm meeting Canadians in high places with amazing testimonies of the power of God that can rival even the best that I've heard anywhere else. In Europe, in the so-called postmodern, post-Christian society, you know, I belong to a group called the First Step Forum. It's a group of, uh, of uh, retired and serving politicians, uh, ambassadors, business people. Uh, an amazing group of people, with one exception. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, they are so active in working out their faith. They're working behind the scenes to, to steer their nation uh, into righteousness. Working behind the scenes against injustice, uh, to alleviate poverty, to end religious persecution. Uh, an amazing bunch of people. And in Sweden recently, uh, uh, some, of these, some, of them, some of these Christian MPs and, and influential leaders 
decided to use this whole thing about women's rights and turn it around and against the people. And they've almost, you know, they've, they've severely limited the growth of prostitution in Sweden on the basis that it violates women's rights. Isn't that interesting? Uh, so um, um, amazing things. In the Muslim world, thousands of people are coming to Christ in the Muslim world. Every time I go back to Malaysia, I'm just amazed at the stories I hear about, uh, about Muslims coming to Christ. Just on the plane uh, today, I was reading in the National Post the, the story of the son of the founder of Hamas, who is an evangelical Christian. Amazing. I tell you, there's no limit. As far as I'm concerned, there's no limit to the power of the gospel. And if there's any limit, it's here. And here. There's no limit. Just amazing things. In one, in one Muslim country, more than 40 members of parliament and members of provincial assemblies come together on a regular basis across party lines to pray and seek God for direction for their nation. In Tahrez Square in Egypt, the recent uprising, you might not know this, but one of the most influential voices was a Christian who stood up in Tahrez Square and prayed a Christian prayer. Really, there's no limit to the power. And, and, and really, that's what I wanted to remind you more than anything else, I guess, is there's no limit to the power of, this, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I think we've been too cowed by, by our culture We've been too cowed. We've been too conditioned. And we, it's time that we threw away those restraints and start looking at the gospel through the, through, the, through, through the eyes, through fresh eyes. Because there is no power greater than, than, than that. And so I, I, I know that as we look, I, I, as we look at, at, at Canada today, as, look at the, at, as we look at the cultural landscape around us, uh, it can be easy to get discouraged but we need to remind ourselves that with God, nothing is impossible. Change is not our enemy, it's our friend. Because change brings opportunities that we've never had before of impacting culture. You know, Isaiah asked, can a nation be born in a single day? Can a nation be born? One of the lessons of change that we see today is that yes, it can. I mean, look at Egypt, look at Tunisia. And if that kind of thing can happen in the secular world, do you not think it can happen when God is at work? I want to end by, uh, by reading, uh, it's 2 p.m. I, got to end, I want to end by reading a book, an excerpt from Wesley Duell's book, Revival Fire. He said, listen to this, he said, it was a time of great moral and spiritual darkness, political restlessness and social need. Various philosophies that had a devastating effect and the authority of the Bible was shaken. Spiritual indifference and skepticism abounded and liberty degenerated into license. Religion was emptied of its spiritual power. Viewed with contempt, it became at most a code of ethics. The masses were largely untouched by the church. In higher circles of society, people laughed at the mention of religion. Most prominent statesmen were unbelievers and known for grossly immoral lives. Marriage was sneered at. Church services declined. Church buildings fell into disrepair. Worship was neglected. Few politicians attended church. Society itself became degenerate, violent, addicted to alcohol and other things. Now that, my friends, is not a description of society today. 
although it sounds, right? This was a description of England in the 18th century. And then God raised up some amazing men and women and everything changed. That, to me, is, is hope, is encouragement. That we could be standing on the cusp of great change if we don't give up, if we press in with renewed vigor, with renewed determination, with renewed faith. This is a battle we cannot lose. Do we still believe that? This is a battle we cannot lose. And it's time for us to rise up in each and our own ways. And my prayer is that, that when you leave this place, you will all go back and be that light in the darkness, that salt, wherever God has placed you. You are the hope of Canada. If ever Canada is going to be saved, it's because of men and women like you. I, I have a sense that I am in the presence of some amazing men and women of God today. And I believe that with God's help, we will meet the challenge of change and impact this nation with the gospel. I believe that Canada will be saved. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.